that coin, that same word, erica, is a reference to the deeds of Christian righteousness. For Paul, when he's talking about works, he's talking about the kinds of things that, that human beings do because we all have inside of us this inner legal list that we want to list. We want a list of things to do in order to prove ourselves and to earn our salvation. And Paul says that will never happen. You can never do enough works and do them well enough in order to prove yourself worthy of a salvation from a perfect God. He says you're saved by grace, by faith alone, by what Christ has accomplished in the, in the cross. For James, on the other hand, he's on the backside of salvation and saying, you know what, there's more to faith than just talking a good fight when it comes to the doctrine of, of, of the Trinity or understanding uh, some truths about the meaning of baptism. There is a, a, a way that faith is to be seen because of the transformation. Remember when he, James talks about the Word being planted in you? That word takes root in you and it grows and it begins to blossom and bears fruit in your life and you are a changed individual. Those deeds of Christian righteousness are the works that he's talking about. I know that you have a faith because I can see it. I can see it. Now that should not surprise us from, because of the life of Jesus, right? In, in Mark chapter 2, here is, here is a Christ in Capernaum. He has moved to Capernaum. The word is getting out that he's a great teacher. He's a great, he, he is a great healer. And then after... This, uh, this in, incredible uh, evening uh, of, of healing. He, in Mark chapter 2, he finds himself in a, a, again in Capernaum, and, and the whole town again has sort of shown up and out on his front porch step. And there is a, a group of fellows who have a friend who is a paralytic. He's paralyzed. And, and they're trying to get this guy to Jesus because they believe that he is the Son of God. They believe that he can heal this, this man. Even though they've never seen it in their life, they believe that he can do it. And, but because of the crowd, they can't really get to the front door, so what do they do? They climb up on top of the house. The houses back then were made with, with a sort of a, 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 a temporary, it wasn't a temporary roof, but it was not uh, a permanent roof. It was soil and, and thatch, and, and you could pull it back. And that's what they do. They tear up a guy's roof in order to lower their friend on his mat before Jesus. And it says that Jesus, in that text, Mark chapter 2, that he saw their faith and pronounce the guy's sins healed. Now, it was a teaching opportunity for Jesus at that point because the Pharisees and others were there and they were looking at life through legalism and who can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus, wanting to show that he had that power and who he was, goes on with the conversation. You know that, but faith was something that you see. Now, when we talk about James and we talk about Paul and the way that they reference work, one references works before salvation as a means to get it. The other references work after salvation as a way to discern and to observe the faith. Now I'm going to step out of the text just for a minute because I, for me this text is incredibly relevant right now because of the culture that we live in. As you know, it's become sort of vogue since about the 1980s to really label generations. We have the, the, the greatest generation or the duty generation. That was the World War II generation, greatest generation that ever lived. Th those that were born to that generation were known as the boomers, which most of us in the congregation and the audience tonight, I'm a boomer. If you were born between you know, 46 and 1963, you're considered a boomer. And one of the things that was sort of interesting about boomers is that, you know, they, they had a period of time where they wanted to sow their wild oats. They were sort of a self-centered group of individuals. And, and, but there was a, a point in which they began to have families and began to mature. And they, as they matured, they became more conservative. And as they became more conservative, they began to, to return to church. 
And since the boomer generation, there has been a buster generation. The one that I want to address right now, though, is the one that was born in the, uh, the mid-1980s to the early 2000s. Now, there's been a lot of names for these, these young people. Uh, they're called uh, Generation.com. They're called Mosaics. Uh, but the name that has really sort of stuck are the Millennials. They're the 18 to 30-year-olds born between you know, about 1985 and the beginning of the 2000s. The conventional wisdom that said that as these young people grew older, they would get and more responsible with, with uh, the, the types of things they were taking care of, they would, they would get more conservative, and as they got more conservative, they would return to church. That's what's happened with everybody. It's not happening with this group of, of, of Americans. The millennials are not returning to church. A couple of years ago, the American Religious Identification Survey and the Pew Institute did uh, a similar kind of a study, the religious life in America, and it reveals that this group is becoming more and more disassociated with Christianity in America, although they are not anti in terms of spirituality. They're just basically anti-church. They are uh, being nicknamed by some of the researchers as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. When they are filling out uh, any kind of a form that asks for a religious affiliation, they don't check anything uh, that applies to a specific religious bin. What they do is they, they check the one that says none. They want to help change the world, but they don't see the church as being a part of that. They see the church as completely irrelevant. They do not get or understand the church, much of it being because they see a, a gigantic dichotomy between what people profess to be true and the way they live their life. James chapter 2, verse 14 resonates with these young people. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What makes this verse relevant to us tonight is what James says next. Same verse, can such faith save them? Now, one of the things that we have seen about James's style of writing and the way that he illustrates things is that he, he writes something that uh, is really salient. It's something that you want to sink your teeth in it, into, and to help people understand what he's talking about, he gives them an illustration to drive it home. Um, you have uh, Christians who come together. One of in, in, in chapter uh, in chapter two that we looked at this morning, uh, one of the brothers or sisters uh, in, in another kind of a setting has come, and they're without clothes and they're without food. And James asks, "You say that you're Christian and that you have faith. What good is it?" Verse sixteen of chapter two. If you see that and you say to them, "Hey, I want you to be warmed and filled, be warmed and and, and well fed." To this, James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is what? It's what, church? It's dead. I'm, I'm asked a couple of times each year by Christians, and, and a lot of times by, by people who have been Christian for a very, very long time, and the question always goes something like this. You know, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I'm just not sure. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that uh, I have this relationship with God in which I'm going to get to heaven? I think James would answer that question today this way. Does the faith that you profess change the way that you live? 
Do you want a sign of saving faith? Does it change the way you live? Have, have you noticed how many examples deal with the way that, 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 that we treat people? In James, in James chapter 1, what is pure religion? It's taking care of orphans and widows and controlling your tongue and keeping yourself being, from being polluted by the world. In, in James chapter 2, you, you know that you are uh, along the right pathway of the faith if you are not discriminating based on superficial readings of people and their clothing and, and how they come in and who they are and what they have on their hands. And in James chapter 2, he said, you know, how do you know that you're, you're, you're saved and that this faith is making a difference in your life? Are you really going to allow someone who is your brother and sister for all of eternity to go hungry and to go ill-clothed in your presence and not do anything about it to show no concern? I think that one of the ways that James would say it today would be like this. Do you treat people the way you perceive God treating you? If you really understand the gospel and you really understand grace and that you are saved because God loves you and you respond in faith to that love and to that message and to what Christ has done on the cross and it becomes such a, a life-changing, transforming experience to know that God loves you and at great cost to Himself, His only begotten Son, His unique Son, John chapter 3, verse 16, that you get that, that it changes you and that you want your sins washed away and you confess that you are, are not able to save yourself, and that Jesus is Lord. And that life begins to change. Then you begin to treat people the way that you perceive God treating you. And that's one of the ways that you begin to see and you begin to understand that you're on the right path. Now, faith is not just belief, but the kind of belief that leads to, leads to a changed life. Uh, many of you have heard of this fellow by the name of Charles Blondin. In June 30th, 1859, this Frenchman... Uh, Charles Blondin became the first man to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 25,000 people gathered to watch it. He walked uh, a rope that was a uh, length of about 1,100 feet. It was suspended about 160 feet above the Niagara Falls. And he did it, and everybody clapped wildly. They thought it was the greatest thing they had ever seen. In the days that followed, I get this, in the days that followed, he would, he would make this walk a lot of times, but he would always do it with some kind of a twist. One time, he carried a chair and a stove to the middle of the, of, of the rope, uh, about you know, 600 feet away from, from the ends. He sat the chair down, sat down, set the stove down, lit a fire, and cooked an omelet and ate it, and then picked it all up and, and walked to the other side. Another time, he carried his manager across the 1,100 feet of, of line on piggyback. Another time, he, he took 350 pounds of cement in bags, loaded it in a wheelbarrow, 350 pounds, and pushed it all the way across the uh, Niagara Falls, that, that, that tightrope, and then back. And then when he gets across, he, he just looks at the crowd, and, and he, he dumps all of that cement out of it, and he looks at the crowd and he says, do you think that I could push a man across? And everybody said, yes. And they start cheering, they want to see that. And, and he says, do you really believe that I can shoot, that great Charles Blondin can push a man across on a wheelbarrow, across the, the, the Niagara Falls on this tightrope? And they are just going nuts. Yes, yes, yes. He, he spies a guy out in the audience who's really cheering really loudly. He goes, how about you, sir? You ready to get in this wheelbarrow? And the guy goes, no way. He asked him, do you believe that I could push you across? He said, yes. Then do you want to get in? He said, no way. I'm just not going to do it. 
In the same way, there's a great difference between the ones who believe that blinding can cross safely and those who believe it so profoundly that it changes them to the point that by that knowledge, they are willing to get into that wheelbarrow and be pushed across. James writes in verse 18, you, you have to show me your de- you, you show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And he gives three examples. That there is a, a certain kind of faith that is not a faith at all. It's not a saving faith. It's a dead faith. He closes out the text with three examples that help draw attention to the fact that faith that saves is a faith that changes your life and a faith that becomes muscular and it's a faith that, that, that does the work of God in the world that God created. The first is a surprising one. It's the demons. In verse 19 he says, You believe that there is one God. Good. <laughs> Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, I, 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 to my knowledge, I have never seen a demon face to face. But one of the things that I know is that demons have more data-driven knowledge of God than I do. They have an experience of God in the invisible world that I've never had. The demons are, are intelligent. The demons have, have knowledge of God that I don't have. Demons acknowledge that God is a creator, the creator of everything, and they have a knowledge of that that is so profound and so data-driven and so right and so personal that it makes them shudder. That it makes them shudder. But they do not have a faith that leads to change that leads to righteousness, that leads to godliness. The demons do not have a faith that gets them into the wheelbarrow that crosses the Niagara Falls. And so one of the points that James is making is that you know, even the demons can debate you about the doctrines of God and the Trinity and about you know, transubstantiation and all of the, what communion, and, and uh, they can debate you on the doctrines of all of these things. But it doesn't make them righteous. It doesn't make them obedient. It doesn't make them trusting and faithful to God and God's commands. Is your faith more profound than that? Then he gives a second example, and this is sort of expected if you're Jewish people, the people who have a background with the Bible, there's an expected example, and that's Abraham. Abraham, after all, is father of the faith. We sing about it. Father Abraham, Father Abraham. In James chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You know the story. Genesis chapter 15 is, is, is sort of this, this high point, especially in Paul's thinking about what it means to be a disciple of, of, of Jesus of Nazareth, of what it means to have faith in God, what it means to be a Christian, to be a child of God. In Genesis chapter 15, it's, it's a long way from Genesis chapter 12 where all of these great promises from God to Abraham have been given. These great promises that God has given to Abraham that, that were so intriguing and so compelling and so captivating and gripped Abraham and, and, the, and God speaking to him that he was able to leave his home in, 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 uh, in Ur of the Chaldees and to travel up to Haran and then down into the, into the Holy Land. 
But there's one promise that has not come true yet, and as you know, the descendants being as numerous as sand on the sea, and how can that be because I don't have a son? And in that culture and in that time, for a guy like Abraham, a son was everything. And so he's pretty preoccupied for most of his life with this thing and takes a lot of wrong turns with the whole idea of getting a son. But God comes to him in Genesis chapter 15 and says, I, I, I know that this is, you're troubled by this, but by the, the time I come to see you again, Sarah is going to have this child. And it's not going to be through any other person. It's going to be through that person wife of yours and that's what God said to him and Abraham believed it he believed it that God was going to just not say something but that God was going to do something and it was credited to him as righteousness so we speed forward to Genesis chapter 22, what the Hebrews call the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And it is absolutely a terrible story. Isaac is of some age. And, and God comes to Abraham, and he has this son Isaac through his wife Sarah. And God says, I want you to take Isaac and sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham believes that Isaac is the son of the promise. And having such faith that Isaac is the son of the promise, such faith that he is able to to get the, 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 the lads and to get, to get the, the animals and to get Isaac together and they go and they travel for a couple of days and they come to the mountain and it goes all the way up to the binding of Isaac and the knife being raised when God says stop and provides the ram and you know the rest of the story. But there was such a, an incredible faith in God that this son that God had promised to me was going to be the son of the promise, that Abraham was able to see the resurrection. And Abraham's faith and his actions were working together in such a way that God was seen as the treasure. Now, in some ways, that can be a little crushing. And I think James knows that. And so James gives us a different kind of an example. It's an unexpected one. The surprising one was the demons. The expected one is Abraham. Everyone believes that Abraham's the father of the faith. Paul really drives that home in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. But then the unexpected one is Rahab. In James chapter 2 and verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. We sing songs about Father Abraham. Nobody sings songs about Rahab the hooker. But I'm so happy that Rahab is in this story. She's a prostitute living in the side of the wall of Jericho, Jericho during the conquest of the, of the, promised, land, of the promised land. And uh, 
Rahab is, is in a tough situation. She's, she's in a situation in which there is, there is no way out. There's not going to be anyone that's going to come to her rescue. There's not going to be anyone that in her mind, in her, her, her world, that is going to be able to change anything about her until she hears that these ex-slaves, these Hebrews, who once had their abiding places, their abode in Egypt, but that this God has come and saved them and has liberated them from their slavery and has blessed them and continues to bless them and to care for them. He's not just liberating them from slavery, but, but in a sense He's sort of liberating them themselves from the thorns and the thistles by providing for them in ways that nobody else has provided for. She hears that those Hebrews are coming and in her heart of hearts, these slaves that are liberated that are coming in her heart of hearts, she has faith that salvation is coming for her as well. That the God who liberated a million slaves in Egypt could liberate one prostitute and her family in a place like Jericho. And so she doesn't just believe it and hope that it's true and hope that at, at some point, you know, you know, sometimes... You know, you know, I hear people, and especially when that, that Powerball got up to about $1.5 billion, you know, you, you hear people in, in the way that they hope to win, they think, win that thing. They hope that the numbers they picked and the numbers that are chosen somehow intersect down the road and they get lucky. But Rahab is, is different. The hope that she has, this faith that she has in God, this faith that, that somehow that somehow motivates her and triggers action, she endangers, endangers herself. I mean, everybody has heard about, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't satellite and, and there, there wasn't, you know, smartphones, but if you have a million plus people moving across the desert and they're being protected by their enemies and bread is falling out of the sky every morning and quail is, is coming in swarms and water gushing out of rocks and the way that they're not getting lost is because a pillar of fire at night and, and a cloud during the day. The word gets out. And she decides that she wants to be a part of that, that she is willing to not just give up everything, she's willing to give up her life. Because salvation is coming her way. And she endangers herself and her family by giving hospitality to the spies. And then when the spies are gone, she sends them in a different direction so that they're not going to be captured or, or detected, their movements detected, and, and, and even sends the, the, the ones that are after them in a different direction. And so here's Rahab, the unexpected one, that James is saying, even somebody, you know, Abraham, everybody gets Abraham, but Rahab is a prostitute prostitute and her faith that welled up into these kinds of actions and works and trust faith that saves and he says at the end you know the body without the spirit is dead in the same way faith without deeds is dead I think that one of the things that our culture needs to see more than just about anything else right now from the church is the intersection of faith and action. It's, it's, it's so easy to talk a good fight. 
It's so good to talk about right and wrong. It's another thing altogether. For all of that information, all of that data that has, 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 has come into your life like an avalanche, like a waterfall, that, that grace, that mercy, for that to be so transforming that you can't help but live according to the ways that God, that you perceive that God has treated you. You know, Jesus tells this parable about forgiveness and says, you know, here's this guy that owns billions, owes billions of dollars to the king. And the king says, you know what? I forgive that debt. I remove that debt. And then that guy goes out. And to illustrate that the gospel had not gotten deep, deep, deep down into his heart, here is a guy that is not changed. He is not changed by the way that the king has treated him. He sees a guy down the road that owes him 50 cents for a Coke that he borrowed last week and begins to want to put that guy into prison and to beat him because he owes him that money. And the king hears about it. And even though this guy has the knowledge of the greatness of the king, it doesn't change him. And he's the one that in the end is punished forever and ever and ever. Our culture needs to see a group of people who, who, who call God Father and then act like sons and daughters. I mean, if we talk about a God of love, then we, we imbue the, the, the culture around us with, with experiences of that love and of that tenderness and of that grace and of that gospel. And sometimes the message is hard. Listen, you, you know, if you, if you go in one direction and, and you never tell the truth because you always want to be on the, on the right side of people, you have solidarity with them, but you haven't changed their life. On the other end, if you just speak the truth in such a way that it alienates people and you won't, in sort of the sectarian fashion, not have anything to do with them, you've made yourself equally useless because the, nobody has any contact with you. You're sectarian. You've put yourself away. And you've pushed them away from you. The answer is to speak the truth in love. It's to speak the truth. And in love, to surf the down and out. And to speak the truth in love to people who really need to hear it, whether they're rich or they're middle class or they're upper middle class, whether they're boomers or millennials or busters or mosaics or whatever they might be, the greatest generation, everybody needs to hear the truth about God and to, and to hear it in the context of love in such a way that it changes them the way that it changed us. That's why we can never treat people the same way that the world who has eliminated God treats them. That's, that's, that's the intersection of faith and deeds. People encounter that. They begin to understand the blessing of the gospel. There's this passage in Hebrews chapter 5. It talks about what well, Jesus is on the planet. He offered up cries and tears to the ones to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his faith, because of his reverence, because of his submission. And you go, wait a minute, is that talking about Jesus? Well, yeah, it's talking about Jesus. Well, didn't Jesus die? Yes. But what he received was greater than death. It was the life of the resurrection. It was life eternal. It was life at the right hand of God. It was life exalted. And when you begin to see that Jesus in tears and in, in, and in pain, and in Luke chapter 22, it's, it's, it's such anguish that he begins to sweat those drops of, of blood and, and sweat mingled together. And he's praying, take the cross, take the cross, take this cup, take this cup, please, 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 please. Your will be done. He's trusting 
himself through the valley of the shadow of death to get to the other side because of God's love. And it's through God's power that Jesus is resurrected and becomes the first fruit of the resurrection with the promise of more us to come. And when that gets in, it's okay to be generous with money and it's okay to be generous with time and it's okay to love and it's okay to speak the truth and it's okay to be around people that are not like us, whether it's socioeconomic or gender or whatever it might be, maybe race, color of skin, language, geographical, whatever. It's okay because of what God has done for us in the gospel. And that's the one thing that nobody can take from you. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Our shepherds are going to be down at the front. If there are ways that we might minister to you tonight in any way possible, our strength, our resources, we want to do that for you tonight. So come down as we sing this song and speak to these shepherds as we praise God together.